Hey Parker, it's February. Spring is not here yet. Um, it's cold in Wisconsin where you are. How you doing? It is. I'm doing fine. My heart is warm with the thought of today's podcast with Diana Butler Bass. Really looking forward to it. I am too. So let's jump right into it. Welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Carrie Newcomer. And I'm Parker Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. And I, and I heard. <laughs> Here we go. To the words and habit between us, and to us and how we live between the words. Diana Butler Bass is a highly respected scholar who holds a PhD in religious studies from Duke University. Her work ranges across religion, politics, and culture with a wonderful combination of rigor and supple ease, or as I like to say, rigor without rigor mortis. <laughs> as a fellow laborer in some of those vineyards, I've known and loved Diana's work for a long time. Loved it because she has the gift of making complex information and insights available to people in many walks of life. I think of her as a very important public professor at large, as well as a courageous advocate of progressive Christianity. Author of 11 books, many of them award-winning, Diana has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and Sojourners Magazine, among many others. She's served as a commentator on CNN, NBC, PBS, NPR, Fox, and other major media outlets. She works independently from home when she's not on the road and has a strong and lively presence on Substack with a newsletter called The Cottage. We'll post a link to The Cottage on the Growing Edge website for those who'd like to subscribe. I'll end what could be a very long introduction of all of Diana's accomplishments by quoting her own words from The Cottage. Quote, by way of full introduction, I am a Christian, even though that label is more than a bit awkward these days, and I write from that perspective with a generous heart toward wisdom wherever it is found, end quote. She says that the creed that guides her most can be summed up in these simple words, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So good to have you with us today, Diana. Welcome. Thank you. It, it's uh, almost uh, something to, it's, it's overwhelming in some ways to be with you too, because I admire you both so much and uh, I'm glad to be able to have a conversation with you. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Just thank you for your presence. We've been looking so forward to this conversation. Um, well, to jump kind of right in, you know, before we get into some contemporary issues that we'd really like to explore with you, we'd love to hear about your own spiritual journey. Your spiritual journey is very important and present in all your writing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, you know, I, I stop and I think about that sometimes because I do write a huge percentage of my work is from memoir. And I remember when I first started, my first, my first trade book um, was a book called Strength uh, for the Journey. And it was a memoir piece that I wrote when I was 40. And I, I, I felt a little awkward at the, about writing a memoir at 40 in certain ways because <laughs> it's like, well, what could, what's going to happen next? And I'm, I hope I'm so far from the ending that I'm really only, you know, kind of in the middle. Uh, but when I wrote that book, the lovely Phyllis Tickle, the late Phyllis Tickle, she uh, wrote the foreword for it. I remember when she called me up and she said, you know, Diana, this is an incredibly unique book because you appear to have invented a genre. <laughs> 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 and and I, I said, what? And she said, well, you use memoir, but it really isn't about you. You're using yourself as an example of history as it unfolds. And so that's really how I think about memoir. Um, in certain ways, my life, I think, is uh, fairly conventional. Um, I like to talk about how my 
I'm a middle-class girl from the middle Atlantic states born in the middle of the 20th century from the most middling of all denominations, the United Methodists. <laughs> and so in effect, I think of the, the sort of life that I've lived as a kind of a, a, a white every woman's life for a person who may have been born in the middle to the end of the 20th century. And yet, it's those kinds of lives. It's just regular lives that do make up history. And so that's what I've been trying to record. The spiritual yearnings of what I think of as a fairly normal existence in the world. And how it's full of heroism and sadness and joy and surprise and all of the things that make up the pathways that we walk. Well, and it's been incredibly um, uh, courageous, too. I mean, you began your, your journey, it sounds like, a bit, a bit more um, in that middle that you were talking about uh, in, in, in religious thought and have really moved um, and journeyed into a kind of opening, into some really courageous ways of, you know, reframing, rethinking, um, considering what a gospel of love actually means on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I, I think that the heroism that has emerged from my life, that, that level of courage, my mother used to say that about me too, is that um, despite the fact I feel like I'm, I've had a very conventional life, one of the things that's true about women who were born I was born in 1959, so women who were born between like 1950 and 1970 is that many of us wound up being sort of the first of doing whatever it is we did. And so for me, I was certainly in a vanguard generation of women who got PhDs in religious studies. There were very few women mm -hmm. who had done that before me. And when I got my first academic job, it was teaching at an evangelical Christian college. And I was literally the first woman ever in the history of any evangelical college in the United States to teach theology and church history. Um, wow. Women wow. before me at those colleges had taught uh, children's ministries or women's education, women's studies, which doesn't mean what it means like it you know, a big university today, um, or Christian ed, but I, I taught doctrine and I taught church history. And I can remember the very first class I ever taught. And this was in 19 fall of 1991. I walked into a classroom. There I was in my early thirties. And I looked at, there was an entire row of people in the back of the classroom. They were all young men and they had turned their chairs to face the wall uh, oh because they didn't believe that women should be able to teach theology to a man who was older than, you know, 13 years old. And that they had gotten just put in my class because it was a required class and this was their protest. And that was my very first ever teaching day, was having to teach wow. to a quarter of the class facing the wall. And... Um, while I think of that as well, you know, what was I think, what was I, you know, to expect? This is a thing that people do in the world that, I, that I'm inhabiting. Um, I nevertheless, I just kept going. And when I've told that story later, people say, oh, wow, what did you do? That's so brave. And I say, well, I called the role. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's what I, yeah. that's what I did. And so, so I think there were certain kinds of things that I, that I just took for granted that I, I guessed might be hard because so many of us were breaking through boundaries that had been in place for so long, um, but I just did them. Do I have it right, Diana, that you grew up in an essentially evangelical religious culture uh, in Arizona, as I recall? And, and I guess my, if that's true, is my question would be, was there anything in that upbringing that sort of prepared you for that response and reaction? My, my upbringing was a bit mixed. And I think that it was my earlier childhood that actually prepared me to just press ahead. 
And mm-hmm. my earlier years were that I was born into a Methodist family. And the, that Methodist family was, again, I said, you know, kind of the most middling of American denominations. But the truth of it was in the middle of the 20th century, uh, Methodism had a lot of really interesting threads running through it. There was sort of Protestant liberal theology. There were lots of courageous pastors and preachers um, preaching uh, for the civil rights movement, people who were opposed to Vietnam War. We had pastors in our little Methodist church in my neighborhood in Baltimore that regularly got up to a whole room full of working class people in Baltimore City and talked about how racism was a bad thing. And uh, my Sunday school teachers taught us that Jesus loved all the little children, not just uh, little children who looked just like us. So there was not a white Jesus poster to be found in the childhood church that I grew up in. So I kind of grew up in this sort of more liberal Protestant environment, even though it was kind, it was very conventional. It was it was exceedingly white, um, and it was it was working class. But nevertheless, there were these threads of this beautiful Methodist social justice tradition that were influential. So then, Parker, comes the part that that you're well familiar with, and that is when my parents moved to Arizona in 1972. Um, We initially went to the Methodist church in Scottsdale, where we had moved, but then my parents just stopped going to church. And I was sort of on my own from about age 14 onward, and I wound up in a Bible church. And it was there that my life became reshaped by evangelicalism and the whole sort of evangelical subculture of the 1970s and 1980s. So I had two very distinctive experiences of American Mm -hmm. Protestantism, one on the very liberal side, and then one on the apocalyptic, get born again, rapture side. And, mm-hmm. and I have been able to draw off of both of those through my whole journey. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that the, that the two were kind of coming um, through in, in your history. So that's really interesting. Um, having grown up in a similar kind of Methodist church myself. So... Um, well, you know what yes. I mean then, that it's, I do, it's, I do. it's and, middling, and time period. but it's also open. It's really an interesting, it was very interesting tradition at the, in the middle to the end of the 20th century, far more than yeah. people I had give the same experience. For. I had exact same experience in a middling Methodist church with all of the tweaks that you described. You know, as you're talking about then how you heroically in many ways, you know, stepped into the next part of your life and the unfolding of your of your work and your writing and your teaching. Um, I don't know. It sounds like there were some ups and downs with that, you know, walking in. I mean, just it's stunning to hear walking in and, and the entire quarter of the class is turned away from you. Um, but I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about about what people are feeling today. I've been reading a lot in the cottage, and there was a, a posting you did uh, in the Advent season called Blue Advent about fear and about about humanness. And you know, a lot of people are feeling kind of lost right now, and and kind of wandering in the dark a little bit right now. So, you know, what what do you think that our traditions, what kind of guidance uh, do our traditions? kind of offer us at, at this time for surviving and navigating in, in a time that feels kind of dark? Well, you know, you, you can talk about the Christian tradition and say that it has incredible resources uh, regarding fear. Um, for example, I've heard many sermons, especially in recent years, that every time something big and dramatic is going to happen in either the New Testament or in the Hebrew scriptures, um, an angel appears and uh, says to people, uh, fear not. And uh, that's, that's very good. Um, but, you know, people can say, and even angels can say, fear not as much as they like. But in truth of the matter is, what happens in that situation depends on the person who is being addressed. 
uh, not necessarily what the angel is going to say. Um, because frankly, you know, if an angel appeared to me and said, fear not, I, I would be even more terrified than I was before the whole situation began. So, so in certain ways, um, angel directives don't really help. Um, and so, so in a sense, Carrie, I think that your question relates to that little mini piece of memoir that I was just sharing. Um, while I was very brave on that first day, I, I, you know, I just did the thing that I thought I had to do, you know, call roll and keep lecturing. Um, the truth of the matter is, is I only lasted four years at that college. And those four years were full of conflict and full of self-doubt and doubt about my vocation. And I wound up um, in a very extended fight with people in my own department. I'm being the first and only woman in a department of nine men in an institution where there were 110 faculty members and only, I think at that time, there were four women on tenure track. I mean, yeah. it was an incredibly difficult environment in every way um, conceivable. And so I, I didn't wind up staying there. And um, eventually, I have to be care a little careful what I say here, um, but eventually what did happen is, you know, they, they let me go. Um, which is a very nice way of saying they fired me, you know, because they didn't give me mm -hmm. tenure. And yeah. uh, when the decision was reached in my case, I remember going into the department or the president's office and he looked at me and he felt really sad about it. He was a really good man and I really liked him and he had been very helpful to me through this whole terrible process. Um, but he said, uh, you just don't fit here. Mm. And, mm. Uh, you know, he, I didn't want to hear that at the time, but he was, he was right. So there I was in my early thirties with uh, $50,000 worth of school loans from all of the fancy education that I had gotten, uh, four years of conflict ridden, uh, professional experience on my resume at an evangelical college, which means you're about as likely to get a job in a secular university as a, you know, snowball survives in Hawaii. Um, and, uh, I had been newly divorced on top of everything else. And I was at that time living in this $500 a month garage apartment, um, in Santa Barbara, California, surrounded by books and borrowed furniture from a number of friends. And I literally had no idea what was going to happen to me. And, mm -hmm. um, I had done what I thought was everything I could do to keep my to keep that position to keep that job because I didn't want to wind up being a bag lady on the beach in Santa Barbara with a shopping cart full of Carl Bart and the church dogmatics <laughs> you know <laughs> so, that, was, that was my yeah. sort of alternative vision and um, I can remember talking to this one friend of mine and uh, he actually is an Anabaptist, uh, wonderful, wonderful Mennonite guy. And uh, he said to me, you know, Diana, I see such a conflict in you. He said, there's part of you that's doing everything as, that you possibly can to do the right thing according to these standards of this institution. He said, but the other part of you, I see this deep voice. I see who you really are. And you yeah. are holding on to that for everything. And he said, if it comes down to it, you have to follow that. Yeah. And on wow. that day, when the president said, you just don't fit here, that's when I knew that what I had to do is I had to follow who I really was, despite the worry about the shopping cart and despite the fact that I had all the bills and despite the fact that I was completely I was really um, alone in the world I had no idea what was going to happen and um, I learned to just go one step further than what I thought I could go and there was a sort of two-year period of my life when that was literally every day of my life I would wake up and I would say, what's right in front of me? And what one yeah. step do I take today? 
And um, it was sort of practicing overcoming fear by just taking that one step and continuing to follow that sort of deep inner call, that, that desire that my friend pointed out to me to be the truest Diana that I could possibly be. And so that's somehow where the capacity to overcome fear came for me. And eventually, yeah. because of that horrible time in my life, um, overcoming fear became a practice. Yeah. It became habituated yes. for me. I just, I want to say, Diana, that your, your story goes in my collection of really powerful stories about what happens for some people when basically it isn't just a conflicted situation, it's a situation where your identity and integrity are under daily assault, right? And, and they're, they're, they're attempting to grind down your own sense of who you are, your worth and your value. It might be suggested that that good Mennonite friend of yours was the angel in this story mm -hmm. and, and that yeah. you were the right receptor for that message because you did what you had to do, which is one step at a time, what's before me today, what's before me tomorrow, and so forth for the next couple of years. So I just want to thank you for that story. Carrie has a similar story. And in, 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 a, in a man's world, I guess I have a, a somewhat parallel story, but not at all the same. Um, but I'm, I've, I so much value these stories that can encourage people who are in similar situations to um, not embrace the assaults on their integrity, but embrace their integrity. And I think that, yeah, I think this is such a powerful story, I, I think, for our listeners, because, you know, many, many people who listen, you know, might be facing their own one step at a time right now, for whatever reason. And uh, where do we find resource? You know, what's the well we, we pull up that, that good water from when we are in a time period when uh, it's, you know, what's the step I take today? Uh, so I think that's a really important story and that you resource that story um, now. Uh, it's one of the things that helped you practice stepping into uncertainty and following your true heart and your true self and your true voice. Because it took you where you needed to go. It wasn't where you expected, but it, it was where you needed to go. It really is not. And every day, it's yeah. still not where I expect. Um, and, and that's, um, you know, there are days, even to now, I, I look back and I think, oh, gosh, if only I had done this one thing just a little bit differently uh, 35 years ago, I would still be a college professor and I'd be less worried about paying for my monthly health care, you know? <laughs> Uh, and uh, then I go, what a cost that would have come at. Yes. And then I say, no, this is this is the path, and I I keep going. And so, so I really there, it's does it makes it easier because it becomes habituated. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you know you're sort of unhuman and you still don't have those moments of regret, those moments of wondering what the story would have been like with a slightly different trajectory, um, and certainly those moments of fear. And right now, I, it's like living in a vat of fear. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think that just some people are afraid. I think that um, certainly American culture, uh, and I don't want to speak for my friends in Canada or my friends in Europe or Australia and New Zealand, all kinds of places. I, I, I love and cherish my friendships with folks. But I know in the world that I immediately inhabit, um, the air is so thick with fear that it literally takes, I think, all of our strength to resist um, having our, our beings poisoned by that, that pollution every single day. And um, being aware of it might be the first step of, of getting through it. Um, but, you know, people make a lot of money off of fear. And there are things to be really afraid of. And, um, or at least to be concerned about in 
very deep ways. And it's, it's, isn't it? I think it is. You're the historian here better than I am on that front. Um, I think it's a, it's a long time part of the American culture. I mean, in our educational institutions have run on fear. You know, fear of failure, fear of getting the wrong answer, fear of, of, of losing out. Our religious institutions have run on fear. You know, fear of condemnation, fear of losing your community because you take a wrong step. Um, so the politics of fear is nothing new. We've in many ways been conditioned to this. Um, for me, whatever it's, for whatever it's worth, the, the redeeming understanding of be not afraid, the message from the angel, which is sometimes translated that way, is that I can have my fear, and I've got them aplenty. I've, since I was a kid, I've run, run with fear. But I don't need to be my fear. Once I get to the point that I can recognize fear's grip on me, as you were just suggesting, Diana, and I can choose to stand in some other place in my inner landscape as I, as I take each of those small steps. So as I move toward this person or this conversation or this piece of work, I can stand somewhere in fellow feeling or in hope or etc. more than in my fear, which is always there. I just have to get highly conscious of it. But you're right, we're swimming in fear, we're bathing in fear, and I'm not sure there's much more we can do than take that one small step at a time. And maybe secondly, and I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about this too, because I know it's an important part of your work. We need to understand that we can't do this alone. We have to do it in community. Um, and then the question becomes, what kind of community? Because there's healthy communities, there's pathological communities, uh, and it's all on the table these days. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the, that dimension of community that runs through your work. Yeah, the, the place where I certainly found a lot of empower, uh, ability to be empowered in taking the next step, um, then, all those years ago in the early 90s, and um, continuing through the arc of my life, has been the church, because uh, it, was, it was at the very same moment that I was getting you know, tossed um, to the, the curbside by the college where I taught that I wound up joining this incredibly quirky Episcopal church um, in Santa Barbara, California. And it was a church that, frankly, the, the Episcopal authorities called the diocese um, in Southern California thought was going to close. And they had gone through a tremendous membership loss. They had this beautiful, and they still do, have a beautiful uh, building that was designed by the same person who would later design the Washington National Cathedral. And uh, that building had never been earthquake-proofed. And so you had a 100-year-old neo-Gothic mini-cathedral in Santa Barbara, California in the 1990s just waiting for the next earthquake to smash down and kill the congregation during the Eucharist, you know? And so yeah. <laughs> the building needed fixing and there were no people with any, and no money. And so that's why the diocese thought they'd close it. And what was really interesting about that church right at that moment, when I was looking around for a new church and the last thing I needed was a big successful church where everybody seemed perfect because I was newly divorced and out of a job and wondering what my life was going to be and barely crawling through the streets of Santa Barbara to figure out how I was going to, you know, move on with my existence. And um, so I, I was going to another Episcopal church that was very wealthy and, and exceedingly, I mean, they were lovely people and I really appreciate them. I'm still friends with many people in that congregation, but I used to joke because I didn't have the right jewelry, jewelry to go to that church and so so I wound up in this declining church with dusty pews and you know on the hit list for the diocese to close and just at that same moment there was no pre there was no um regular priest and the diocese went well what can we do we got to send somebody up there to be their 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 priest in order to close this church and they had um, a fellow by the name of Mark Asman, who had stepped away from the priesthood 
for several years and become a buyer at a big department store chain in Southern California because he'd figured out he was gay. So he knew the rules of the Episcopal Church were you can't be gay and you can't be a priest. So he had already been to seminary, been ordained, he was practicing the priesthood, figured out he's gay, and then he, so he's fighting for his authenticity, uh, steps out, becomes a buyer at I Magnet, and then after several years of doing that, goes back to the Diocese of Los Angeles and says, um, I'm sorry, I'm gay and I'm a priest and I have to be both. Is there anywhere you can put me? And the diocese says to itself, oh, let's send him to that dying church up there in Santa Barbara. Because <laughs> oh <my laughs> nobody gosh, yeah. will ever notice that we sent a, 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 a gay priest to practice in this church. Because even then, 1991, 92, uh, there were very few out gay priests in the Episcopal Church, and there were none in the Diocese of Los Angeles. So they sent Mark to Trinity, and I showed up at Trinity at that same time, and we became actually best friends. And, and what was fascinating was that somehow that church started gathering people with very similar stories, stories of people who had fought to be who they really were uh -huh. in a church that was fighting for the soul yeah. of its very life. And all of those people together turned into this incredibly beautiful, truly welcoming uh, community. And as we opened our hearts to one another, it was all of the fears of the people in that community lessened. Because when Mark first came, he was afraid to tell people in the church who he really was. He told the bishop, but he was afraid to tell us because he had been so, so often rejected for who he really was. I had been just rejected for who I really was. There were people there who were artists and ex-fundamentalists and all kinds of really interesting people who were afraid to be who they really were. First transgender person I ever knew was part of that congregation because they were afraid to be who they really were, except there. And so, so that's the kind of community that literally saved my life. And it was from there that I began to understand that there really could be a different kind of church, not a church that was just about following the rules or institutional survival or what have you, but a church that developed spiritual practices that truly embodied that call to follow Jesus, the call to love neighbor, the call to love each other, um, and that set a table in the world where all were welcome. So that, that became for me part of my passion uh, to write about that, that the, it's not just a dream, that oh, there yes. really truly are places in the world that are Christian places that, that do that. And eventually, you know, I find out that there are places that are Jewish places and places that are Buddhist places and places that are full of people who are worried about religion, <laughs> yes. where, where folks really do that. Um, and somehow it's so much better when we can do that together and, and we're not alone. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I want to connect some dots here and ask for your response. So... You said earlier we're bathing and we're swimming in fear. I believe that to be true. And I believe that a lot of that fear has to do with the fact that a lot of people feel marginalized in this society. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We know on the far religious right that those people have felt dissed in a thousand ways by contemporary culture, by secular culture, by liberals. We know that liberals and progressive people, religiously and politically, are feeling totally marginalized in a nation that seems no longer to give a hoot about democracy or decency or anything along those lines, that it's willing to settle for con men and bogus deals right and left as long as we can, ex as, as resentments get expressed. So is there, a, is there a hopeful possibility here that like your church in Santa Barbara, where a whole lot of marginalized people found each other and created community precisely because they weren't at the center anymore. They were on the margins where you can see a lot more than you can at the center. 
where you can know yourself a lot better than you can at the center, where you can feel life better, more deeply than you can at the center. Is there a possibility that marginalized people from various places on this great spectrum of fear could come together and find each other in that way? I'm not thinking of something massive and quickly transformative, but I'm thinking of religious communities that might try to specialize in helping people support each other in their alienation, rather than playing on the alienation to up the heat, to up the battle, and, and try to win some pyrrhic victory that will just bring everything tumbling down. There's a small idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right there, you sound like a conversation I had. It must have been 10 or 11 years ago now. I was in England, and just on a complete whim, I decided to contact Rowan Williams, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I knew that he was familiar with my books. He had said some very nice things about things that I'd written in the past. And so I contacted him, and he invited invited me to Lambeth Palace for lunch. <laughs> okay, Ooh, so cool. here I am, an Episcopalian, and I'm going to Lambeth Palace for lunch with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so we're sitting in his office, and I was talking about my my worries, you know, and I know that he has plenty of worries, and he had certainly then too about the future of Anglicanism, and you know, sitting in this building that I knew um, had been a building where, you know, Henry VIII had once walked, you know, with somebody who's who's got this incredible title, and he had literally picked signed pictures by the queen all hanging on his wall. Um, and so we're talking about all these, all these worries, and he's, he's, he looked at me and he said, Diana, if you've come here seeking answers, you will find none. He said, because the only place where hope exists is at the margins. Wow. He said, so you go, and then he literally told me, he goes, you go back and keep your work there. Yeah, on the margins. And I'm sitting there going, well, wait, wait a sec, but this is Lambeth Palace, you know? And literally the Archbishop of Canterbury told me just what you said, is that hope. Hope grows in the margins. And I think that that is true. That has been the experience that I've had, and that's I have tried to write about that. And I think it's also dangerous. And that's one of the really, I think, tenuous kind of cracks, or the, 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 the it can go either way. Because yeah. the margins can wind up being a whole bunch of people finding themselves out of that sense of alienation and creating new community. And they wind up invading the capital of the United mm-hmm. States on January yeah. 6th or creating a community that's based in some sort of violence against others. Um, or it can be the goofy people that I met in Santa Barbara who saved the life of a really fascinating old church and who have been each other's sort of shared heartbeat for all the decades following. Absolutely. You know, it can be the beloved community or it can be the Third Reich. That's exactly Um, right. I I think history demonstrates that time and again. I guess my pipe dream uh, is that people from various points and with various reasons on the alienation spectrum might might come together in a way that helps them know each other better, helps them understand each other's stories better, helps them understand that uh, the, the, the shared alien, sense of alienation would uh, ease up if they would stop doing this to each other, that it would float all the boats, at least in some experimental, modest settings yeah. of, of the sort that maybe we need that the church to be these days. The, uh, what, do you, what do they call them in high tech? The incubators of, yeah. of something new, you know, that isn't available right now, but that has been modeled from time to time by things like your Santa Barbara off-brand Episcopal <laughs> Church. <laughs> I, 
I think too, I, I'm really, one of those things that I'm grateful for in my, my unusual life as a traveling folk singer, you know, is, you know, with a spiritual thread, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like the genre that, you know, who, who's in this category, <laughs> but, um, I've visited a lot of those communities and played music and had conversations with people in those kinds of communities that are doing, you know, following a kind of, you said in one of your pieces that essentially the gospel is about one thing, love, you know, which is a really powerful idea. What does a radical revolutionary kind of love look like in community? What does it look like uh, in a daily life? Uh, I remember uh, there was this one little church, this little big church in uh, near Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, I think maybe at least a third, third to half of the people there um, were, were gay. So there was like a, a, a wonderful diversity um, there. And I, I remember playing there at the service, the morning service, after doing a concert the night before. And it was right before Christmas, and all the little kids were practicing for the big, you know, Christmas pageant. And uh, after, so after the, after the service, all these little kids were coming out from Sunday school, and they all had angel wings on. I mean, all these little kids with angel wings on. Um, for the Christmas pageant. And some had two mommies and some had two daddies and some had a mommy and a daddy and some had one, you know, it, it was, there was all, and, and some were adopted and from China, from different places, from the foster system. There was like, there was this, this beautiful, and, and people, they were hugging one another. And there was like all these loved children. And I looked around and said to myself, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is when the gospel comes down to it's all about love, how that changes a place, how it changes a community. And I think about that place sometimes. And I think about, I could, I could probably sit here and just tell, and you could too, I'm sure that you have visited a lot of communities um, who are putting into action in all kinds of interesting ways this, this idea of taking care of one another, of loving one another, of justice, um, to humbly and compassionately, but also, you know, with great determination, you know, working toward that better world. So, uh, I don't know. I, I really love the story of this Episcopal Church, <laughs> and I am going to be actually thinking a lot about that phrase about um, hope is in the margins. That's where you find it in, in that little church near Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. That's where it is. One of the loveliest places I, I think that I ever was in terms of a church was uh, we were invited uh, to a, a wedding and it was at a rural Baptist church up in the mountains in North Carolina. And um, I think that my daughter was maybe three at the time. She's 24 now. So this is quite a while ago. And the person who was getting married um it was the daughter of the Mennonite who had been so kind to me mm. years before. And she was marrying a fellow who has since become a pretty well-known author who works with William Barber. Um, and so she, so Leah, the daughter of my Mennonite friend, married Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, who has written so wonderfully about race and social justice and community in the last two decades. These two are, they, they, their wedding is in this Baptist church in the mountains in Western North Carolina. It was around Christmas time. And so we drove down to North Carolina. We drove up this mountain road. We arrived at this, this church and literally it was just a church out in the woods. And we, we went up this, this road and they had gotten to a certain point on the road where they lined the road with luminaries and the candles shining in the little um, paper bags on the, on, the, on the road going up the church. And when we arrived, there was just a little bit of snow on everything. It wasn't very deep. There were candles in the windows. There was greenery hung all around the, the church. And uh, we walked in and it was this gathering of people from 
the college friends, people from all over the, the United States who just loved these two and loved all their wonderful and interesting parents. And um, the service was simple and lovely, very Baptist, you know, sort of almost, and, and little Anabaptist sorts of twists on it. And there was this uh, one place where they said, now we're going to have communion. And uh, we, the way they served communion was they literally just had a table in the front of the church. And there were all these loaves of bread that had been baked by their friends. And there were these, you know, huge sorts of cups um, full of, of grape juice because they're, they're Baptists. So every person, every family walked up to the table sort of together and, you know, took a hunk of bread off and, and shared the, the cup. So here my husband and I walk up and there, this, this whole room full of writers and activists and Christian college students and all these lovely people. And uh, we give this, the bread to our daughter and then we give her a drink of the, of the, the cup. And my daughter screams out in, in the wedding. She goes, but mommy, that's not wine. That's grape juice. <laughs> in the middle of this wedding communion. <laughs> And the whole place just broke down and just peals of laughter. And the bride That's says, That's what you get for raising your kid as an Episcopalian. You know, and there, was, there was something in that moment that was so just joyful and funny and accepting and loving, and that that made something that was already beautiful and tender and sort of almost kind of ethereal but earthy it was all those things all at the yeah. same time and it made us something more than we were and it was the words of this three-year-old you know theologically judging the baptist grape juice <laughs> I, I, lo I, I love it I just love, I, and I, uh, the congregation's reaction, of course, is redemptive and healing and empowering. It's wonderful. And quite yeah. wonderful. So that and actually that is affords... the kind of world that I dream of. <laughs> amen. Even, amen. Yeah. Or a squirrel in church will do the same thing, you know, scampering around <laughs> under the pews. But that actually gives me an opportunity to bring the dark thread back because... We're, we're, we've all been saying we have to look at the dark thread these days. That's right. Yeah. And that yeah. is that, that that story in my mind, in a funny way, Diana, stands against idolatry. I mean, it's the capacity of a, of a community of people who have profound beliefs not confusing the thing their beliefs are about with the way in which they instantiate them or embody them or practice them. Oh, amen. Which is, which is idolatry, idolatry of doctrine, idolatry of practice. I, I'm wondering, and I really would value your view as a historian of these things, a church historian, what, what's happened to idolatry today? I, in the middling, middling Methodist church I was raised in, idolatry was a big no-no. You know, you, you don't dare attribute God to your country or the president of the country or your political party or particular policies. God is God, and the other are the works of men and women, uh, hu human fallibility. Today, it seems like half the Christians in the country believe that one guy had God's ordination to be president, the other guy doesn't. The country is very, very special to God in a way other countries aren't. White, middle-class American lives are blessed by God in a way other lives aren't. Um, what's up with that? <laughs> to, to, to put it in street language. <laughs> to me, that is a the reflection of what I consider to be the sort of the ultimate fear, you know, and a, a few minutes ago, we were talking about sort of, you know, generalized fears. And yeah. there is an enormous amount of fear in our culture right now. There's always been fear. You rightly pointed that out, Parker, you know, the, there are always things to be afraid of. There always have been things that we've been afraid of. There are personal things that we're afraid of, etc. Right now, I think that part of understanding fear is 
that we are roiled in Western culture in particular um, with what I would call existential fear. And that is mm -hmm. there are people who are truly terrified. Um, and and this, this works on several different levels and I think from several different directions with different issues too. But right now let's stick with like the, 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 the Trump, the political thing, you know, half the country thinking somebody is ordained to be president, etc. Um, there's this existential fear that white people are going extinct. You know, just just to name it. And that means that a culture or cultures are dying. And the, the fear there is, of course, who comes after us? Who will remember us? Has it all been a waste? Will the world that our few children and fewer grandchildren inherit resemble the world that we loved and cherished in any way, shape, or form? So there's that just the sheer sort of anxiety and terror of survival that is going on with people who are of European um, background and who are racially white. Um, and then there's the, I think, the more sort of liturgical kind of fear that's in that. And that is who will remember us. And to me, those are the two most primal fears. Will we survive and will we be remembered? And those are fears that haunt, I think, all of us as individuals. Every person I know asks themselves those questions on an individual level sooner or later in their own life. But now it's a cultural question. It's a huge question. It's a question of a massive number of people all at the same time who are terrified that what they knew will cease to exist. Now, the reason I say that that works on several different levels is we could translate that whole fear over into, say, like the climate crisis, too. And so, in effect, what we have is we have on both sides of a political spectrum the same fear, the fear of extinction and the, the fear of who will be left to remember. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't heard it approached quite that way. Yeah. What, really what I'd love to have time to talk about, we may have to do a redux on this podcast uh, because I know that our time is starting to run short. Um, I've always assumed that in 50 years, very few people will remember me. And in 100 years, nobody will remember me. I've just taken that for granted. Uh, in other words, gut check, reality check says to me, yeah, that's, that's part of the deal. We're, you know, life moves along. And we all know of important people in our lives dying, and a week later, everybody ex expects us to have moved on ourselves. Because they've moved on. Life continues. Uh, while we continue to grieve the dear one that we've, that we've lost. And I also am drawn to reflect on the tragedy of this massive fear around a fiction called race, uh, which does not exist except as a social construct that keeps messing us up. You know, race is, is a is an uninterrupted continuum of genetic frequencies <laughs> in, 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 into which we break with concepts. They cross this line and you're such and such and you will experience such and such consequences. It, it's a, an amazing fiction that uh, is causing incredible damage. I don't, I don't know how all of that stands theologically, except I think it was from my own Christian formation that I got the notion that in this world you will be forgotten, but you will be remembered, held close, loved, uh, cherished elsewhere. Uh, right. And, and so it really, really, I have just have to say it baldly, it feels to me like the Christian community has lost its bearings um, and it and it's why I am so profoundly empathetic with your with your self statement about these are hard times to to say I'm a Christian it it's an awkward time 
to say that. I feel that a lot myself. Well, that's one of the things that I think has come into play in terms of Christianity and why it is that Christians have been so deluded by um, this this particular fear, this this fear of extinction, this fear of who will remember us. I literally hear that all the time when I'm working in churches. People whose churches have shrank and they don't really want to close the buildings or what have you. And they look at me often with huge tears in their eyes. And, I, and, and, and I'm not a pastor, but... I think I am on another level. I mean, if I was a Quaker, you don't have such a thing as this sort of ordination. But my heart just goes out to those people when they say something like, well, once we're gone, who will remember us? Yeah. And, you know, they're thinking about, you know, who will remember, you know, why that stained glass window was named after, you know, this some beloved matron of the congregation who died 25 years ago and who meant so much to them. Who will remember, you know, and, and that's usually when I say, Parker, something like what you just said, I, I usually say, well, um, that is part of the nature of who we call God, is that God holds all things in all time in memory. And it's why our Jewish friends talk about, may their memory be a blessing, is because that memory becomes part of the memory of the whole, and that memory of the whole is is held by, in and through that which we know as God. Um, now that's that is theologically and spiritually. I find it to be very satisfactory myself, but I think that it's less. I think that we haven't communicated well. I don't know why human beings find it less than satisfactory, and they'll go, "Oh yeah, yeah," but 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 what about this building? Yeah. And right now, it's not just those nice people in those buildings that are being threatened to be closed, but I find huge numbers of institutional leaders are absolutely terrified. And the reason they're terrified is that they feel like their institution is going to disappear. They're going, they, and they say, they say things like that all, all along. Well, what happens, you know, if such and such, you know, if, if we get to be less than uh, 600,000 people, the Episcopal Church will never be the same. And I kind of go... You know, really, this is what we're concerned about. Well, we'll have to close the seminaries. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, and so that that need to hold on to to the the forms that we have created around these things that we love, and thinking that those are the things that are going to make for memory, right. that those are the things that will immortalize us. Um, is miss is a misreading of i think what the deepest wisdom of the tradition actually absolutely. is absolutely it doesn't really matter if it isn't wine or if it isn't <laughs> that's right emma had it right when she was 3 years yeah. old <laughs> and it and it doesn't really matter if it doesn't last because we're here now and we're doing what we can and, and that's the moment that's important Thank you so much. And I hold in my memory the that image of all those little children coming out. That's so beautiful. Angel wings, you know, in the spirit of love. I mean, I hold that in my memory, and that will travel with me. And, it, you know, it'll pass into my songs in some way or another, just the spirit of remembering that. You know, I think I think the things that the culture encourages us to... to um, see as substantial, or this makes us real. You know, uh, there was this great little church in um, near Austin, and the pastor basically kind of got pushed out of the the kind of conservative Baptist church he was pastoring, and because he was a little, he was too con, too progressive in his thinking. So he started this little church, and it was awesome. It was in a warehouse. You know, and he gave like some of the people in the church like $25 to like drape it and deck it out in whatever they could find at yard sales and stuff the day before. And, um, and, and it was growing and it was very, again, kind of like the one in, in Santa Barbara you were talking about, that it had this sense of at the margins, something beautiful was happening, but not with all the trappings that usually we think you know, culturally we've been thought that makes it real, you know, and he said he used to go to this, you know, the Monday breakfast with all the pastors in the community. And there was always this conversation about how many 
people were in your, <laughs> you know, how, what's the number? And he, they didn't have membership. They just had a big old basket, like a big old wicker basket. And if you felt like you wanted to like be with the church, then you would put your name on the stone and you'd throw it in the basket. And, um, that was, that was it. And, and so when they say, well, how many people are in your church? He, he kind of put his arms out and, you know, people listening to this, but you know, I'm making my arms go around about the size of a basket. It's like, well, about that many. <laughs> <laughs> There's I, a great mystery of beauty in all of these things. And this is what, one of the things that I think actually does lessen fear and gets us on our way. I have a very just quick, short story to end sort of my conversation, my part of the conversation with, you know, we talk about memory and, you know, who will remember us. And we get all full of this anxiety about that. We have to save our institutions in order that we'll be remembered. We have to save our political parties that will be remembered. We have to elect this person that will, that our race or our cultural group will be protected by the state, you know, what have you. And um, about six years ago, I was having dinner in Richmond, Virginia, and had, and I was meeting for the very first time uh, John Philip Newell, the wonderful mm, Celtic yes. writer. And, uh, you know, he's another person like you two <laughs> whose work, I mean, I literally didn't know what to say to him when I first met him because I was in such awe, you know, and, and I had found out that he read my books and it was just the, the loveliest meal. And so we're talking and I said, you know, um, John Philip, I'm going to go to Scotland this coming summer and I'm, I'm sort of wondering um, about particular things I might want to see. And so we, we talked about that and I said, have you ever heard of this little village uh, called Maniki? I think I pronounced it wrong. I think I called it Maniki because I didn't know how to pronounce it at the time. And he looked at me and he said, how do you know that place? And I said, well, I've been doing all this work in my ancestry, and I've discovered that my mother's originating line to, uh, to America, um, they came in around 1660 from a little village in Scotland, and it's called this village, uh, Maniki. And I discovered my ancestor was baptized in this particular church. And I had looked up the church on the internet, and the church is now part, uh, it's part of the Church of Scotland, of course, and it has, it's three linked parishes, because they're all in these little teeny tiny rural villages, and the church uh, exists, um, but it only has like five people in it, and so mm. I, I, so I wanted to find out, I said, so, you know, would this church still be in existence? And meanwhile, he's just looking at me like I'm kind of nuts this whole time I'm explaining this to him. And I said, well, you know, would it be worth my while to go to this place and try to find this church? And he said, Diana, that's where my family's from. Oh. And we, we stopped and we just stared at each other. And we realized at the same moment that our ancestors were from the exact same parish church in Scotland and that our family lines had both gone back to the 1300s when this little parish church was first founded. And that was 800 years ago. Wow. And yeah. here we are sitting in this restaurant in Richmond, Virginia, and there were other people there, and they were, they, uh, uh, the whole conversation just became fixated on the fact that the same parish had originated both of us. Mm. Yes. And I love telling that story now because whoever remembers that church and the truth of it is, is that through books that John Philip and I are writing every single day, you know, thousands of people throughout the world are remembering that church, yes. even though there's no one left and it's basically closed, you know, and great story, great story. Why, why should we be afraid? Yeah. Just keep living, right? Keep living. 
And right. keep having lunch with interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a great mystery that holds us all. We're all connected, you know. That really love are. is really present. That creativity flows through the universe. That God is with us. Thank you so much for taking this time with us and for these really important and, and touching and funny and profound explorations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a joy to be here. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. Now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because, yes, she takes one step in front of the other and creates the better world.